Welcome to Regenerative Farmers of America podcast. Well, thanks for thanks for uh, talking with me today. My name is Garrett Long. I'm the director of agriculture here at Troon Vineyard in the Applegate Valley in Southern Oregon. Um, we are about 100 acres, about half of that is planted in grapevines, and the rest of the farm is a diversified, biodynamic, and regenerative organic certified operation. We've got a small flock of about eight sheep and 50 chickens. Um, we're doing a lot of uh, landscaping and habitat restoration. We're, we have a rewilding bees program, um, and uh, I'm in sight of our demonstration garden that's a native plant garden it's got more than 90 different species of uh, native plants here um yeah and we're we're also you know as a as a certified biodynamic farm we're we're making um all of our own preparations here on site and using biodynamic practices um in conjunction with uh with the regenerative organic practices um, to really build this diversified um, farming operation. We just broke ground earlier this year on about a two acre vegetable garden and permaculture style food forest. That's uh, still in the process, but uh, by the end of this year, we'll have a whole bunch more vegetables and fruit and eggs and things to offer at our on-site farm stand here. That's also under construction. So we're, we're growing a lot in 2022. That's amazing. It says vineyard, but that's clearly like just the tip of the iceberg with all you guys do. Did it start yeah. as regenerative biodynamic or is it something it evolved into? Like, how did you guys get started with that? Yeah, the, the vineyard uh, changed hands in 2017. Uh, Denise and Brian White purchased the vineyard and uh, immediately transitioned into biodynamic agriculture. Um, prior to that, it was fully conventionally farmed. Um, the vineyard was planted in about 1972 and uh, has gone through a couple of different owners over the years, but was one of the earliest vineyards planted out here in Southern Oregon. Um, is a bit of a claim to fame and, and a reason why we've uh, maintained the true name and, um, and our Scottish heritage. Um, we're approaching our 50th anniversary actually this summer and we'll hold a little solstice celebration um, to, to honor 50 years of that true history. But um, this, this transition to regenerative agriculture, to biodynamics happened with the, with the new owners. Um, we've been working with a biodynamic consultant named Andrew Beattie um, for the last about four or five years since the project transitioned. Um, and he's just been a huge help in, in, um, in educating the staff and also just transitioning these hundred acres, this entire landscape over to biodynamics. That's awesome. I, you guys have been in biodynamics for so long, you know, sometimes it's easier to see the benefits when it's more recently, but what would you say are kind of like the high level benefits, the things that just are so much better with you guys than with other vineyards? Is it nutrition? Is it taste? Like what are kind of some of the big things that you think really make it work? Yeah, that's, it's a really great question. And I think, you know, we could, we could talk about a, a couple of different things, but when it comes to wine quality and and also the the chemistry of the wine grapes after harvest um what i'm i'm told i'll say just briefly that i don't i don't really have a background in viticulture you know i've worked in various regenerative systems that are primarily either livestock and pasture based or orchards or fruits and vegetables 
So this is my first foray into viticulture, but what I'm learning here and what I've seen in the last six months that I've been director of agriculture here um, is I understand that every year that we have um, gotten deeper and deeper into this transition, every year that we've been applying these regenerative practices, um, the, the, the health of the vines, the vigor of the vines has increased. Um, the yields have increased. Uh, when we started here in 2017, um, a lot of the vines were actually quite sick. We had fungal diseases. We had a red blotch virus was pretty rampant in this whole area as well as throughout all of our vineyards. And so we undertook a pretty massive um, uh, undertaking of, of replanting all 50 acres of grapes. And so we've done 10 acres a year for the last five years. And next year will be our final replant. And we're all very, very ready for it to be finished and, and to allow us to um, not just actually be producing um, the kinds of varietals and wines that we want to produce, but also to start to diversify in the way that we're making strides on this year. Um, but uh, but back to the the grapes themselves, you know, following this replant, uh, there's still vines that have been in the ground for more than 30 years that have also undergone this transition. And what I'm told is that as kind of sad as it is that these vines are the healthiest they've ever been the day that we tear them out and replant them. So we've seen these older vines really start to overcome some of these fungal diseases. Um, but unfortunately, they still serve as a reservoir for that virus to be able to spread throughout all of the new vines that have been replanted. So we do still need to replant everything. But we've noticed this incredible uh, rebound in health and vigor and yields. Uh, and then, like I said, in wine grape chemistry as well, um, uh, which is just very, very encouraging. Um, I can say with my background more in soil science than winemaking, um, that also our soil tests have demonstrated that, you know, we're, we're sequestering carbon, we're building organic matter. Um, I think a lot of that is in, is in uh, uh, relation to cover cropping and spreading biodynamic compost. We're integrating the sheep throughout the vineyard and all of the non-vineyard areas as well. Um, but the process of really stacking all of these different practices have really resulted in healthier soil um, healthier grapes and, and eventually fruit trees and all the rest. Um, our animals are based entirely on grass. Um, this is the first year that we're really rotating them fully, but if everything goes as planned, there'd be no need to supplement with hay or alfalfa. We're planning to just keep the animals moving and keep them on grass all year round, which is a real blessing to, to be able to work in a pasture-based operation and, and have, um, have enough rainfall even here in southern oregon to be able to get our animals through without having to um supplement but if we do we've actually got about a four acre field that we um, have been haying for the last couple of years so it's kind of funny we have this little pile of hay stacked up and ready to feed should we need it and if we don't at the end of the year then we can uh, nicely turn that into compost um uh so there's, there's been a lot, of, um, a lot of indications that the regenerative practices and this transition to biodynamics is, is really working, is working well. Um, and then maybe the last thing I'll mention too is, you know, I think that we're seeing nature respond. Um, I only came here last August, but in the five years that we've been here, you know, there's reports from the rest of the staff that we've seen bird populations increase as well as diversify. We have a lot more migratory birds and waterfowl coming through. Um, we've got um, birds, just butterflies, um, bees, including native bees, ground nesting bees, all of these folks, um, pollinators coming through. 
And it's just incredibly beautiful and inspiring to see nature respond and recognize that this is habitat, this is pesticide free. Um, and to be able to, um, for example, we've got these two resident swans who, you know, they, they made for life and they just live here on the property now because they've got everything that they need and they just don't leave. And so to see either migratory animals leave and come back year after year and, and make a nesting site or for animals just to take up, you know, a new home here has just been really encouraging. That's so awesome. Clearly creating a, a perfect environment for everyone. <laughs> yeah. Um, Switching to the business side a little bit, you know, we do talk about like the cost associated with regenerative agriculture and you hear one argument that it's more expensive and one that it's cheaper just from the standpoint of the business. What does that transition look like for you guys, especially replanting and changing that that comes at a cost? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It does. And it comes at a great cost, really. I mean, vineyards are not cheap um, to install in the first place. And when you have to first tear out an existing um, vineyard, an old trellis system, we're transitioning a lot of the vines over to head trained vines instead of the full vertical shoot position um, trellis system. Um, and so we're, you know, we're, we're redoing the, the whole vineyard system. Um, we, we have to also redo the irrigation system, which is sort of old and leaky and um, retrofitting everything to bring it up to, you know, kind of modern technology, utilizing things like compost tea and fertigation, um, and, and just increasing our capacity to, to, to exercise these regenerative practices, all of that does in, involve a, a really um, pretty substantial cost. But I think that what this, what this transition requires, in addition to usually some kind of investor or supportive you know, owners, um, is, is it requires a long-term viewpoint. You know, I think it's actually a short-term you know, profits over soil health mindset that got us into this this current issue with with modern industrial commercial agriculture, where there's such a short term focus that, um, you know, you end up sacrificing health for for cheaper production costs. And so, you know, we're really taking a, a 10, 20, 50 year view of this project that, you know, there, there won't be a return on investment for any of this um, uh, vineyard work for 10 years, probably. Um, but every year, you know, we'll produce more and more grapes and more and more wine. Our goal is to get up to 10,000 cases a year um, when we're kind of at full capacity. And, and, and then only then, you know, five, 10 years in, are we going to actually expect to see some sort of income on that massive investment? And that doesn't even count the rest of the farm. So I can definitely understand um, the criticism that it is more expensive. And I know that's something that, you know, <laughs> better than most people farming, you know, by your bootstraps. Um, it's, it's not easy and it's not, uh, it's not romantic work. It's not, uh, it's, <laughs> but it is, it is in its own, it is in its own way. I don't mean to say that it's not romantic or beautiful or inspiring. I think we're both, we, we probably do this because we're passionate about it, not because of the paycheck, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but no, I think I think it just really requires um, a long-term uh, viewpoint on on your investment, and and the other thing that I think is really important about this transition is that there are certain elements of the business that are more expensive, but a lot of it is actually just changing costs, changing what we used to spend money on, and and transitioning that. And so um, some examples I can say is that, uh, you know, in, in organics and regenerative organic, um, there's a big focus on, on the human, the social component, right? 
Um, so that's part of our, our regenerative organic certification or ROC um, is that we are required to maintain um, a certification through the Equitable Food Initiative that supports uh, year-round employment and benefits for our employees that make a living wage for this area. Um, uh, a, a team here gets trained on on issues such as conflict resolution, and um, and and you know it's a team that's made up of management and non-management workers, and so altogether there's so much collaboration and conversation about the human element of farming that we end up investing a lot more in our people and in our labor force than we do in say big tractors or equipment or um, expenses in that way. And I think maybe the most obvious transition of where there's just sort of like a trade-off um, is on inputs and, and, and fertility. So, you know, we don't apply hardly any fertilizers. There's a little bit of like crab and shrimp hydrolysate or, or just like a little bit of low NPK um, fertilizer that will inject into the irrigation lines. Um, but for the most part, all of our fertility is coming from the compost and the cover crops and just the integration of animals. And so we're not buying in bags of fertilizer. We're not trying to replace what we're taking away. In fact, we're just supplementing the biology. We're using things like compost tea, um, kelp, and products like that that really stimulate the microbiology to unlock the nutrition that's already in the soil. I mean, we're in these incredibly fertile valley here um, in the Siskiyou mountains and, and geologically speaking, there's just tons and tons of nutrition in the soil. That's just waiting to be unlocked through the microbial plant symbiosis, you know? So, um, so we've seen, you know, just huge decreases in the, uh, um, expenses of, of those inputs, but we've traded off for buying, you know, um, 400 tons of cow manure of organic dairy manure from our, uh, from our neighbors. Um, and that's the basis of our compost and the compost is the basis of our fertility here on the on the whole farm so you know that's that's a that's an expensive pile of, of manure i'll say that much but um but it's a lot cheaper than hauling in bags and bags of fertilizer and the the carbon footprint of that is also much much more reduced and i think that's another element of of cost that people don't really think about you know that requires that long-term view that requires that holistic view that requires that view of, of of a global carbon cycle and what is the real cost of continuing to farm in this industrial commercial way versus starting to shift towards soil health and really focusing on carbon sequestration we know through climate change that there's a huge cost associated with continuing to farm this way and and emit co2 at these um incredible rates and those costs be it through natural disasters or unpredictable years or crop loss due to weather or pests or whatever it might be just that unpredictability that comes with climate change there are great costs associated with that that um that are really hard to plan for i feel with ag everything is hard to plan for right so now we're into costs and natural disasters and everything else it really doesn't give you a, a moment to breathe with anything <laughs> yeah that's right so you guys have been around doing this awesome thing for such a long time. Do you feel that the customers who buy your products have connected with you because of those reasons? Or do you feel that everything you do is kind of the secondary benefit to the product? How have your customers kind of approached this? You know, it's really interesting to think about going back to the fact that we've been around for 50 years and there's a lot of folks who live here in the Applegate who have known Troon. And we also have a tasting room up in McMinnville um, which is in the Willamette Valley north of us and, um, and, and 
for many years before that, it was just in the in the adjacent town of Carlton. And so a lot of people know True, neither through that Carlton tasting room or by coming through the vineyard here for the last 50 years. But the evolution of the management of the property, of the of the winemaking style, of the varietals that we're growing, we're a, a completely unrecognizable you know, operation compared to just five, six, seven years ago. Um, and so it's really interesting to, to talk to consumers and hear, uh, hear their take on this transition, you know, and I think it's, I think it's a mixed bag there's some people who just always loved the wine, the way that it was with made with a lot of new Oak and, um, and a lot of inputs and interventions in the winemaking process. And some people really love that and they come to expect that. And, and it's at the cost, the price point that they come to expect. And, uh, you know, I think there's a handful of people who probably just don't love the transition, but it's really interesting. It's most interesting to me to talk to the people who knew Troon before and have watched us evolve and keep coming back in order to experience more and more. And I think that um, whether it's those customers who are sticking with us through the transition or people who have found us because of the transition to regenerative or to biodynamics um, or because we have, you know, cute animals on our Instagram now or, um, you know, they're interested in bees or cover crops or we're doing more um, sort of like immersive farm experiences and tours and um, native plant tours and things like that coming up this summer. So, you know, there's a lot of reasons why people are coming out to uh, experience this this new direction for Troon. Um, and I think I think the the reasons why are as numerous as, as the people who come out. Um, but it's really I think I think the direction is really compelling for a lot of people. And the conversation, be it on soil health, climate change, um, natural wines, biodynamics, um, you know, animal integration and ethical meats, you know, there's a lot of different um, sort of touchstones or, or touch, touch points to, to um, attract people out here. And at the end of the day, you know, we hope that people join us in this beautiful, you know, tasting room garden that I'm sitting in for a glass of wine. Um, and and to experience the 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 dynamic you know vitality of the wine that I think is so expressive, it's one of the really cool aspects of wine. I think is that it, it is such a reflection of of terroir, and 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 that that term, as I understand it, is 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 a is a reflection of place, meaning both geographic location, your your climate, your soil type, and how that presents in 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 the grapes and in the wine. Um, but I think it's also interestingly, it's a reflection of of people and and of the culture of that place. And I think that Troon has really taken strides towards um, cultivating, uh, uh, maintaining this this really deep uh, sense of culture and community, and and a place for people to gather, to bring their kids and their families out here to to celebrate, you know, family milestones and things. We still are very deeply rooted in community, but there's so many other ways for people to tie in and hopefully get inspired. Um, by this new direction. Um, and I, and I think the wine's pretty darn good too. I think you're, I, I like how we're all struggling with the same thing. How do we get this message out and what is it that brings people there first? Is it cute animals on the internet? Is it that it's an amazing quality product? And I feel that we're also scattered trying to say, well, what is like a one good hook? Would you say there's any kind of like high level ones that have been working, but I know we're all kind of shooting in the dark and it's, Per person and what resonates with them. Any like high level ones that have risen to the top? <laughs> um, 
I mean, the first one that just seems obvious is just the wine. I think, um, again, everybody has a personal preference. You're right about that. But I think I think most people find that the wine is just so much more dynamic and compelling and expressive. You know, there's just there's something so interesting about the wine these days. And, and that's been, um, you know, it's no disrespect to any of the previous winemakers or owners or anything. But I think um, this approach using biodynamic fruits, this, uh, you know, low or no intervention winemaking approach, no added sugars or water or acid or anything, no yeasts, everything's spontaneously fermented. Um, I think that that approach to winemaking just presents the opportunity for the wines to, to really speak for themselves. And I think that that is a real um, selling point for a lot of people. Um, sort of proof is in the pudding, you know, so to speak. Um, and then, you know, the other thing that I think um, as we're talking just farmer to farmer and thinking a lot about um, marketing and livelihoods and especially rural livelihoods, um, I, I think that people are really motivated by stories these days. And, um, and I think Troon has done a great job with our social media accounts. Um, Craig, our general manager, has a background in journalism back in his college days. And I think our relationship with um, local media outlets, as well as, um, you know, it, national and international media outlets, social media, um, I think to be able to be a, a, a demonstration site that invites people out here to come out and learn, and for us to just transparently talk about our practices and, and be really proud of them and to tell stories about what's going on here, you know, just little observations. We always encourage our team to just like snap photos when you're out there. So, you know, it's the middle of lambing season. I'm taking a ton of photos of baby lambs. Um, we're breaking down on the, uh, breaking ground on this vegetable garden. So there's lots of development of, of, you know, now the greenhouse is up and now we've got our garden beds all bedded up and just these little Little, little stories and little check-ins, I think, actually really resonate with people pretty deeply. And 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 again, you know, whatever the reason is that brings you out here, um, hopefully it's it's the glass of wine that is the hook. And maybe you sign up for a wine club membership and you're encouraged to come out again. Um, that, those are, I think, the real things that um, that sort of attract people initially and then and then and then grab you, get you to stick around. I love it. And I guess it's always good to look at the flip side of the coin. What consumer struggles have you had with uh, individuals? Of course, you've had people who knew you previously. What struggles would you say have come up about educating people around the regenerative movement, the biodynamic movement, and why you're in this transition? It's a really good question. I mean, I, I think I'll, I'll be the first to admit that I can be overly verbose and, and wordy and, and maybe kind of nerdy and overly scientific to a fault. Um, and I think that that's actually one of the struggles of regenerative agriculture in general is that it, it, it relies upon these, these really complex, dynamic, natural systems. Oftentimes, you know, these processes are taking place below ground where we don't, we, we can't see, we can't, we, it's really hard to measure anything quantitatively, um, the soil environment is such an incredibly complex ecological environment, chemically, geologically, biotically, biologically, um, that it's just, it's, it's really hard to kind of wrap your head around things sometimes. And so if you don't have a background in, in that, um, I think it can be, it can be difficult for some people. Maybe this is more of an issue of the poor communication than it is a failure on anybody's part. But I think that, that that's one of the things that I am challenged by is actually trying to keep it simple enough that 
people understand n- not just what it is that we do, but why we do it and, and, and how these really complex diverse systems work. I mean, and I think Lauren, you could probably relate to the diversity is hard, right? You know, I can understand why there's been a move in the last hundred years towards specialization, whether you're running beef cattle or growing tomatoes and, and, and hoop houses or whatever, you know, uh, almonds in the Central Valley of California. I, I understand why there's the drive towards specialization because to run sheep and chickens and dogs and and pigs and bees and vegetables and a hundred different kinds of fruit trees and all it's just it's totally overwhelming and it's hard to do anything well let alone everything well and so you know i think that um i think that that's both one of the challenges of farming this way is that there's resilience and there's health in the complexity and there's resilience economically too, if we lose part of our crop or if we continue to have any late season frost like we're having, we might lose some of our wine production, but hopefully we can make that up in some of our other fruits and veggies and egg sales and things like that too, or or farm events as you know, hosting people through Airbnb. I think um, those diversified income streams are really are really beneficial. Um, so it's both, it's both, what benefits and sort of makes these systems work and makes them effective but it's also it's it's the challenge when you're trying to communicate that and when and when i you know based on my last answer of the storytelling and like it's the hook is like what you tell people and the education and the outreach and like really selling the stories we have a lot of stories to choose from but to actually get a deep understanding of how they all tie in together is something that i think is is um it, it definitely has inspired me. It's the reason why I'm on this journey personally. Um, and I think a lot of people, whether they find organic food or regenerative agriculture through through health or, or a health struggle or a personal health journey um, or or otherwise, um, I think that that this is this is a process. You know, it's a process of experimentation. It's a process of getting back in touch with the land. Um, and, and, and that I think is, is, as much as many farmers and, and especially academics want to deny it. I think that is a spiritual and emotional process of getting back in touch with the land and back in touch with, with your community and with your people. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's both a challenge, but it's, it's really rewarding. And it's certainly the reason why I, I do this work. I love it. Cause it's like, well, why do you do this thing? Well, it's like, well, it's based on holistic context. It could be anything. And you do this well it depends like so you can't give a straight answer to anything because yeah. it's all so varied but i guess like that's nature right like <laughs> we totally. can't change that <laughs> i'm gonna try i feel like the sun is really killing this i'm gonna try to change positions you've had quite a glow it. though it's actually kind of been working for you <laughs> oh okay well thank you my, my aura uh, you did well, you have like a little like rainbow aura for it at one point it was very nice so i think it's actually working in your favor <laughs> okay thank you um so the next one, just kind of high level um, certifications. You did mention ROC in the beginning. I'm sure you have biodynamic certifications. Can you just give me a high level? Which ones did you choose out of the millions and why were those most important to you? And they're definitely not the cheapest. So kind of just which yeah. ones were important to you guys. Sure. Um, well, there's three main ones. We're organic certified by CCOF. Um, we are Demeter biodynamic certified. Um, we achieved that after the first three years. And then just last year, we finally achieved ROC or the Regenerative Organic Certification. Um, and which level with, are you at on ROC right now? Just We're, we're silver and okay. we're hoping that when we go through our audit this September, we're, we're hoping to get um, gold. And I was just going to mention that a, a part of that 
achievement of gold was what I was mentioning earlier around EFI or that, that social farmer and farm worker fairness certification. That's an additional certification that is a requirement for ROC at the gold level, but it's an additional certification with a whole nother certifying body that's a part of it too. Um, so, you know, maybe worth mentioning is, is that next year it's our goal to become um, either animal welfare certified or, or another animal welfare um, certification to also be able to sell animal products and, and be ROC certified as well. So the three are organic, regenerative organic, and biodynamic, but within ROC are, are a couple of others, you know, that are either in the works or, um, or uh, will be achieved this year. And would you say you guys picked those because they're recognizable or just that they kind of cover each section? What was kind of the, the big choices around those? <laughs> yeah, um, uh, CCUF just sort of made sense for us. Um, uh, both ROC and Demeter recognize CCUF as an organic certifier, especially out here on the West Coast is one of the bigger ones. So that one was, was sort of a, a, a no brainer for us. Um, when it comes to both Demeter and ROC, yeah, it, it wasn't taken lightly because both the amount of um, compliance, paperwork, record keeping, um, audits and inspections, all of that is it's a pretty heavy lift for both of those um, and, and, and a cost, of course, as well. So um, the thought process behind it, partly this transition to biodynamics, um, I wish Craig was here to speak to it himself, but he really was the one who was, was, came on board as the GM at the same time as the owners purchased it. And it was his experience working in the wine industry for, I think about 30 years. And every time he would have a wine where he would, you know, think, wow, this is a really special glass of wine. What, you know, what is this? And he'd turn it over and he'd see the Demeter label there was just this consistency around, well, what makes biodynamically grown wine really that so compelling and so interesting? And so um, I think totally from, from just a winemaking standpoint, um, uh, Demeter was, was really appealing. And I think there's a real um, uh, history and association, a positive association between Demeter and the wine industry um, here in the U.S. So uh, I think that was part of it. Um, a big part of it, but then, you know, there are other elements of both the Demeter um, certification as well as in ROC that really speak to um, our values as a company. You know, the fact that Demeter requires that a minimum of 10% of the total acreage be set aside as biodiversity reserves or these pollinator habitats. And, you know, we've got a big two and a half acre pond or a lake here on site with tons of waterfowl and things I was mentioning earlier that, that, requirement to maintain wildlife habitat and to integrate wildlife and to integrate animals. That was something that we wanted to do for the reasons of regenerating health and soil health and, and providing habitat for wildlife. And it's a requirement of the certification. So it's sort of, um, there's just good alignment, good, good values, um, alignment there. Um, and then sort of similar with the social component of, of ROC as well and, and the animal welfare component. You know, these are just values that we hold as a company that's really from a top down from the owners all the way down to every staff member here really believes in, um, in, in the importance of, of integrating, you know, um, um, social fairness and animal welfare and soil health and all of these just into the fabric of the business. And so we're a small team here. There's fewer than 20 people on staff. Um, and that's the folks who work the tasting room, um, the whole farm team and vineyard team that works out in the field. Um, it's our winemaking crew. It's everybody here on board. And um, from top to bottom, there's just a real good alignment of values. And I think it's actually something I'll speak for myself here. And I think it's true for our winemaker, Nate, as well. 
where we were attracted to come join the team and join the project, despite it being, you know, hours away from uh, like four hours away from Portland, for example, um, and further than that from the Bay Area, we're not that close to major cities or major airports. And so to relocate our families here um, is, is, a, is a big ask, but I think that we're just so motivated by, um, again, just how, how the ethics and the morality are really woven into the business. Um, that that appeal was 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 inherent there, and so the selection of those certifications um, came came quite naturally and quite timely as far as ROC actually rolling out their program. Um, it it our, our transition to ROC allowed us to be the first um, ROC uh, winery in Oregon and the first uh, winery in the world to actually get the ROC label on a bottle of wine, which is another thing that we're quite proud of as well. Um, so yeah, good good timing on on that on that program and and just the necessity of it. I think in terms of the the greater regenerative movement is really um, we we really love working with the ROC folks. I love it, and I, I think this one's going to be too many answers, but I'll give it to you anyway. What's the future of Troon looking like? Obviously, it's diversifying, it's creating yeah. more animals, creating more wildlife. But kind of, what are some big things that you're really excited about for the future? Yeah, yeah, you're right. We could I could probably chat you off for an hour of all of the fun things we have planned um in in my world maybe i'll just start there and then there's a few other things we could i could talk about but just on the agriculture side getting about 80 some fruit trees in the ground this year is really exciting to me you know we, they won't yield fruit for three to five years but i'm really excited about one planting trees for just carbon sequestration and other benefits but also for you know um, the future of having uh, persimmons and figs and nectarines and peaches and plums and um, uh, just every kind of stone fruit you can imagine. So I'm really excited, as well as apples. Um, I think I failed to mention this whole time that we've got uh, about a two acre cider apple orchard. So in the future, we're also really excited to add um, cider to the product line in addition to wines. Um, so I think you know, production of the fruit trees and, and expansion of the orchards is something that that is really exciting and in the future. Um, and and on the livestock side, you nailed it. I mean, we're we've had half of our sheep give birth, the another half to go. And as of this morning, we've doubled the size of the flock. So if things continue in the way that they've been going, we'll triple the size of the flock just this year alone. Um, and then, you know, continue going up from there. And and you know, we're, we're breeding our sheep mainly for the ability to be able to manage greater acreage and, and rotationally graze greater acreage. Right now we've got eight sheep or, you know, we're not counting the babies. We've got eight sheep on a hundred acres and we just couldn't possibly move fast enough to graze all the grass. And so, you know, what we'd love to do talking about those trade-offs earlier, what we'd love to do is trade off mowing and burning the diesel and having somebody sit up on a tractor and trade that off for having somebody move around those portable electric fences and rotationally graze the whole property. If we could put down the weed whackers and the mowers, I mean, that would just be the, the dream. We'd know that we've really arrived in, in Eden here when everything is all of the grass is mowed by the animals. So um, we're going to continue breeding and expanding the chicken flock too in time. Um, but that's that's another really exciting part of the future um, is breeding. And then, you know, I think if if either our winemaker or our national sales director, you know, if, if these guys were on the the call as well, they would they would have a lot more to add. 
But I think just to speak kind of high level about the future of wine production here, you know, as we've replanted these vines, we'll have finished that replanting next year, next spring. And again, similar to the fruit trees, we won't have any production from those baby vines for the first three to five years. And so we're at about the lowest point of producing wine that will be this year and next year before it really starts to kind of hit that 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 trough and then continue up. So we're producing more. We'll be producing a lot more wine in the future, but also a lot more wine that feels in line with this direction that we're going. We're producing a lot of Rhone style um, wines and planting those varietals. Um, of a climate here that's very similar to the Rhone Valley in France. And so it, it it's fitting to grow Syrah and Morved. And um, uh, so, you know, the, 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 what is it sort of like the profile of, of our wine uh, or wines in our wine list, the diversity of the products that we're, that we're able to offer is growing. And I think that's also really, really exciting um, for the customers who don't only really geek out about, you know, lambs and, and soil microbes, but, but about the wines themselves. Um, so I think there'll be a lot of really cool directions and cool things to share um, as, as that, as that aspect of the business grows too. I love it. It sounds like you guys are clearly going in the right direction, saving the world and apparently all the birds and animals and things that come with it in your little area. <laughs> so we're we're I, trying. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for being here with us today. My pleasure, Lauren. Thank you. Keep up the good work yourself. <laughs>